Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. Good morning. Well, it's good to be together. Um, greetings. My name's Steph. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, we're going to start a new series today. As you just heard, it won't then carry on next week because next week's going to be an all-age service for Mother's Day. But then we'll do two more weeks after that. So today... 26th of March and the 2nd of April, we're going to be looking at Christian sexual ethics. So we're going to be exploring that. I've called this um, series, The Road to Rest. And I'd love to just read from uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, just one verse. In the book of Jeremiah, what's basically happened is, is that the, the people of God have really gone their own way. And the first few chapters are probably some of the most heartbreaking um, and... and, uh, and disorientating chapters in the whole of scripture as, as God really speaks very much from his heart about um, you know what his people have done and, 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 and where it's left them and then there's this incredible um, verse that comes up here in chapter 6 verse 16 thus says the Lord stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls but they said, we won't walk in it. And um, it reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. He was most likely thinking of this scripture when he said that. He is the good way. He is the good way. He is the ancient path. And um, this subject of... Sex and sexual ethics, obviously, for many of us, in many different sorts of ways, creates significant restlessness. And uh, just trusting, really, that through looking at this, that God will take us on a journey as a church to rest for our souls. Where we come to a place of um, unity and rest and deep spiritual satisfaction in the ways and in the works of God. Uh, we're doing this series now, just sometimes when people do such series that, you know, sometimes... A protest can be made or thought, you know, why is the church always talking about sex? It isn't. Um, we haven't preached on this for, 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 for many years now, really. Um, in fact, the last time we did some really kind of meaty preaching on this, as far as I can remember, was 2008. It's a long time ago. <laughs> 15 years ago, yeah. Um, and so, and obviously, you know, our, our wider cultures kind of moved on a lot in that time. So it's really important to be able to speak into this and, and talk about uh, this. Who is this series aimed at? All of us. This is a series to equip the church. And if you're among us as a guest, as a visitor, you are so welcome. And it will give you an insight into who we are as a church and what we believe and where we're going uh, on this subject. Maybe you're here as someone who's not a believer, not a follower of Jesus Christ. There will be those guests among us who are believers and other guests who are simply looking in to find out more about Jesus. This will give you a helpful insight also into the gospel and into Jesus. We're hoping that this series will be full of Jesus. How is it going to work in terms of the format? This week will be quite unusual. There'll be quite a lot of sociology and quite a lot of history um, this week. Any sociology fans out there? All right. Any history fans out there? Okay, a few more. Any neither fans out there dreading this sermon? It won't be just that. It won't be just that. But we need to set the scene and really just try and help us all to think about how we think about these, this subject. It's really important to to have some time to think about how you think about this is really important before you think about it. 
So a bit of self-reflection and thinking about that um, sort of thing. All of us agree that a sexual ethic is an important thing. What is an ethic? It's basically a kind of a moral, a moral understanding, a moral boundary. How, how um, a sexual ethic, if you've, your sexual ethic means what you consider to be right and wrong sexually. What you consider to be okay or not okay. And some of you might be thinking, what's this got to do with Christianity and Jesus and the gospel? Well, stick around for the next few weeks and you will find out. Um, but it's got a lot, a, a lot, so much um, to do with it. Not everything needs morals and ethics. I like stamp collecting. Did you know that's one of my hobbies? I'm not even joking. I can feel the sniggers. I can feel the laughs. But I'll have you know, it apparently is the most popular hobby in the world. So you're in the minority. But we don't need an ethic. What's your stamp collecting ethic? Well, there isn't one. Why? Because it's not that important. It's not that profound. It's not that meaningful. Okay? So just enjoy it. You haven't got to go through. How does this work? You collect stamps. You look at them and you go, ooh. That's, how, that's what it is. And it's great. So certain things in life, you don't need ethics. You don't need boundaries. You don't, but I think we'd all agree, one way or the other, that you, you, around sex, it's different. It's just really, really different. It's different in its power. It's different in its meaningfulness. It's different in its consequences. So it's really important that we that we think about it. I, I, um, just just I've pulled out just a few uh, slightly random but kind of uh, interesting uh, facts about the the British sexual ethic because basically your the British sexual ethic it will will be reflected in the laws of the land. So just some some laws that you might find interesting, um, and all of these different kinds of um, the, the Bible's full of all kinds of different. Uh, commands, uh, encouragements, discouragements about sex. So even though some of you think, why is a guy talking about that? You'll find most of it in here. Okay? Bestiality. Legal or illegal? Hands up if you think it's legal, if you know what it is. You don't, if you don't, don't worry about it. You're better off. <laughs> if you know what it is, if you know what it is, put your hands up if you think it's legal. Hands up if you think it's illegal. Yeah, you're right. Adultery. Hands up if you think adultery is legal. Hands up if you think it's illegal. A little bit more of a variant on that. Adultery became legal in 1857 in the UK. Rape. Rape was punishable by death until 1841 in the UK. It just, these are paedophilia, a massive problem, not just in terms of the nature of what it is, but in terms of its scope. Horrific statistics. Horrific. Around um, the internet. Paedophilia. If I told you the statistics, you wouldn't believe it. Homosexuality legal in the UK since 1967. There's a sexual ethic that we have as a nation, and it changes. It changes over time. And that's a really interesting thing about law, law and culture. You're, when you're in a democracy, as culture changes, the law changes. Follow me here. Because 
as well as politicians wanting to stand up for what they believe in, they also what? They also want to get voted in. It's a democracy. So in a democracy, politicians have to have a very close eye on culture, what's happening, what's developing, and will adjust where they can in order to get voted in. But then once the law changes, that then impacts upon the culture. Okay? Because certain things are deemed to be right or wrong, you're brought up in that culture, and so you get taught this is okay, this isn't okay. But again, it's all, it's all changeable. It's all changeable. You go to different countries of the world at different points in history. All of these things are changeable. Probably the most clear way to sum up the uh, British uh, sexual ethic is in the word consent. That's probably, that's probably the most distilled way of summing up what our sexual ethic is as a nation. Who knows what the age of consent in the UK was in 1800? 12. 12. And then the age of consent in 1885 moved to 16, mostly by the work of the Salvation Army. Interesting fact there for you. But consent's a bit more murky than it seems. Consent is actually quite a murky business because there are outward cultural relational pressures at work very often and inward thought processes and desires at work that create a murkiness around the subject of consent. What if two people consent to do something sexually that's harmful or damaging? Is that okay? What if you've got a situation in a relationship where you've got someone who's particularly coercive and someone else who's essentially used to being coerced and they consent to do something? That's murky. That's murky because there's dynamics going on there. There's all sorts of thoughts and pressures and, well, if, if I don't do that, will they still love me? And all of this sort of goes on. And so it's consent officially, but there's so much that goes on under the surface there. And so it makes you realize that consent in and of itself doesn't actually create a sexual ethic. And it's important that we just kind of deal with this, wrestle with this, think about this as we move into uh, this subject today. These are really, really important questions, really important matters. I want to ask to talk about the sexual revolution for about the next 15 minutes or so. What's the sexual revolution? I hear you cry. Well, if you're not from the UK, if you're not from the West, actually, genuinely, you might think you might have no idea what that is. Because it wasn't a political revolution as such. It was a cultural revolution, something that happened in the UK in around the 1960s. And essentially, it was this. It was a relaxation of a certain idea. Up until that point, there was a genuinely agreed idea, which doesn't mean people live by it. Okay? It doesn't mean that. But it means it's a generally agreed idea. And the generally agreed idea was that um, marriage, which at that point would have been understood as um, a relationship between a man and a woman, marriage was the domain for sex, and the purpose of that sex was twofold. Number one, for the strengthening of that union. Number two, for procreation. That was the general sexual ethic of the West up until the 1950s, an understanding. Now, like I say, not everyone lived like that, 
But those who didn't live like that, there was a se- it would have been a sense in their mind and heart that they were doing something that wasn't quite right. Okay? That's, just, that's just how it was. That's, that's a cultural observation here. So if we were to rewind, for example, 70 years and just put this many people in a room in a, as, as a church as we are today and ask about what's right and what's wrong sexually in a church, that would undoubtedly be the response by the vast majority. If not all of the people, they would say, yep, um, sex is for within marriage. So the question we've got to think about today is what's changed and is it progress? Now, progress is a really important word. Really, really key word. What's changed and is it progress? So let's think about the sexual revolution. Fascinating book, not, not written by a Christian. This is uh, written by a woman called Louise Perry, who's a secular feminist. And um, she's, she's, it's called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. So people outside of the church now are starting to go, hold on a minute. <laughs> She says this, I was raised in a liberal environment that lent too heavily on a simplistic progress narrative of history, and the problem with this narrative is that it encourages us to ignore both the ways in which things may have become worse over time and the advice offered by older generations. C.S. Lewis coined the phrase chronological snobbery to describe the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that count discredited. Older people are dismissed by snobbish 21st century liberals as not only foolish and uninteresting, but also problematic. While in most cultures the elderly are regarded as sources of wisdom and thus granted particular respect, in the modern West they are more likely to be disregarded and condescended to, shut away in nursing homes and assumed to be of no use to anyone. At the end of every year, a rush of articles in liberal publications advise 20-somethings on how best to withstand the problematic opinions voiced by older relatives over Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. So there's this general sort of narrative, you know, that the old, the old, the old, the old guard have got it wrong and, and we've moved on since then. And so this is a, this is a tough read. I mean, I'm, not, I'm only partway through it. It's a, this is a tough read because she she's very graphic, um, but she, she's seen some things. And it's, I think, you know, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, it's a, it's a, it, she's a brilliant writer as well. So it's, it's worth looking at. But I can't recommend the whole thing. I've not read the whole thing. So let's think about the sexual revolution. The relaxation of the idea that sex is for a lifelong relationship between one man and one woman. And it's for the strengthening of their union and for procreation. So, like I said, started in the 1960s, at which point most children were born in marriage. And most marriages lasted. Now, those marriages might not have been happy or personally fulfilling, but people probably weren't asking that question anyway. Funny old game, isn't it? So, but most kids were born in marriage and most marriages lasted. Now in the UK, it's more common to be born outside of marriage and divorce rates are at 42%, which is down a little bit on the last uh, few years, but that's probably because less people are getting, getting married, but they currently sit at 42%. Um, and of course, marriage is now being redefined because of the gender revolution, which is a a different thing. So what caused the sexual revolution? Well, there's a few things really interesting. Um, and please don't jump to conclusions in terms of what I'm going to say about it. You know, I, I, there's, there's, life and the world is complex. And things happen, and you often, often what comes out of it is some really good stuff and some really bad stuff. So please no, don't jump to conclusions. But, you know, th- so 
what you've got, you've got the introduction of the welfare state. When the Second World War finishes, you've got the introduction of the welfare state, which is basically the idea that the state is, is going to step in and help to care for people's uh, basic and primary needs um, through, benef- through the benefit system. That was a new thing. So obviously before that, it's all on the family. Whereas now, care for little ones is not, necess- not in the same way. It changed. And so it was possible to provide for a child without a traditional breadwinner. That's really interesting. Um, then we have deindustrialization, which basically means that there are more jobs in the service-based industry, uh, making it easier for women to move into the workplace more easily. At the same time, scientific advances leading to effective contraception means that sex becomes uncoupled from procreation and from the responsibilities associated with childbearing. Again, really interesting. Legal changes around abortion in the 60s led to the same thing. Since 1967, there have been now over 10 million abortions in the UK. Since 1967. Medical advances leading to effective medicine for sexually transmitted diseases means there's a liberty to sleep around without dire physical consequences. So you've got these social things happening, these big things happening, and then with it at the same time, you've got the growth of mass media, which means that certain ideas can begin to be spread very easily. We'll look at some of those ideas in a minute and some of the, some of the lines from some of the songs. But what's the key word here is choice. Suddenly, there's a whole lot more choice in life for you as an individual. There's a whole lot more things you can choose to do or choose not to do. That's a really, really key. And, and the way that some of the writers describe, the, what's, what's the idea at the bottom of the, of the sexual revolution is, is radical, expressive individualism. Okay? Those, those words sound a bit long for some of you that are used to longer words. Or s- English is your second language. I'm going to explain it, so don't worry. Okay? But radical, expressive individualism. The importance that we give to individual thought as opposed to the importance we give to traditional authorities and traditional institutions. That's a huge mind shift. Previously, you know, what does the generations before say? What does the church say? What does your school teacher say? It kind of moves and shifts much more now. What is the focus is, what do you think about this? And again, we can see the scope for real positives there and some other um, perhaps not so positive elements to that to that but what you think about something rather than what others think about it is obviously tied quite closely to the idea of freedom from the authority of others really key principle we're doing some self-reflection freedom from the authority of others so yet so key phrases you'll be very familiar with key phrases like this you be you Express yourself, follow your heart, be true to yourself, find yourself. These are, very, these are phrases of radical, expressive individualism. If someone had said that 70 years ago, no one would quite know what they, were, what they were meant. You'd be met with expressions of bewilderment. Okay? So things have really moved on and have really changed. It's important that we understand that. And so the purpose of life becomes what? This is key. The purpose of life in this scenario, under this revolution, becomes look within... Find the deepest sense of self, express it to the world, regardless of what others say or think. I'll say that again. Look within. And through looking within, find your deepest sense of who you are, and then express it, regardless of what others say or think. 
to a completely different mindset. Questions like, does your job satisfy you, would have been a fairly bewildering question pre the 1960s. The question would have been, does your job enable you to put food on the table and feed your family? It's a completely different framework of thinking. So the reason why I'm laboring this is because in, until we understand the, 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 the culture change, the mindset change, we will not be able to really properly read the Bible. Because this was written in a completely different age, in a completely different culture, a completely different time. And so we've got some real work to do in terms of next week where we're going to look at what does the Bible really teach in terms of the sexual ethic? And week three, well, what, and what are the implications for that as a community of believers together as a loving Christian family? And what are the implications for that in terms of us as a witness to the world? So we've got to do this work today and really think about, think about how we think. So mass media, spreading, spreading ideas. So very f- we all know now, don't we, the most famous or the most popular song at funerals is not a hymn. It is what? I did it my way. Here's some of the lyrics. Um, you, might, you can imagine Sinatra or Presley. Or you, just, you, you imagine them so you don't hear my, my voice. I did it my way. Here we go. For what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has naught. Not to say the things, the things he truly feels, and not the words of someone who kneels. Let the record show I took all the blows. I did it my way. Notice particularly in that line, not someone who kneels. Bob Dylan, in his song, The Times Are Changing, says, hey, your children are not going to obey your command anymore. Because, because the voice of the parents is no longer considered the, the truest voice. It's the voice, it's the inner voice. In the 1980s, Madonna said, I am my own experiment, my own work of art. 1990s, what's the most, most successful film of the 1990s? Titanic. Yeah, where the main character moves away from what her family wanted to do in order to pursue what or who she wants. A very young Leonardo DiCaprio. And it's celebrated, it's celebrated, isn't it? It's really important you understand these narratives because it's celebrated because there was these expectations on her that she found what she really wanted. And it's just important to just see what's going on there we have to then assess it and, and discern, but it's important to see and understand that narrative. Most popular song of the 2000s, sung by Elsa, Let It Go. Let It Go. What's going on in that song? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of her redemption song, isn't it? There's that been all these expectations on her all her life. She's got to hold back because of her, her powers with turning things to ice. She's got, she can't really express herself. But now, see, she's got her own ice castle in the sky. She's thrown off. She's thrown off those inhibitions. And now, let it go. And she's being her true self. Although, interestingly, in the story, actually, if you then look at the whole story, if you're interested in Frozen, <laughs> you'll realize this is actually a moment of false redemption. So it's quite an insightful film. That's not actually a true redemption. That's false redemption. Really interesting. 2022. Adele's album. Adele's album about her recent divorce, a divorce she initiated. Now, in previous generations, a person leaving their marriage in pursuit of their own happiness because they didn't feel they could be themselves in a marriage would widely be considered selfish. Now those reasons are are considered valid and she's been celebrated for her courage. Huge changes. It's a revolution. 
radical, expressive individualism. The song Sandman by Ed Sheeran has this line in it. Fall into the world of your own song. Whatever you feel can never be wrong. Whatever you feel can never be wrong. So it's getting quite extreme now. <laughs> the underlying narrative of radical, expressive individualism is that you have to be yourself and it's not right to challenge what you feel deep down inside. It's, not, it's inappropriate to question or challenge what you feel deep down inside. creep into parenting you know don't even tell your children what gender they are because it could be oppressive let them look inside and tell you I'm trying to help you to see the framework of thinking beneath it people don't do crazy stuff per se people do stuff that fits within a system of thought and values I'm trying to just help you to see how these values fit together so huge implications now let me just say this life in the UK in the 1950s and before was not the golden era all right don't hear what I'm not saying it was not the golden era there never has been a golden era there will be one but there's never been one we just got back from two world wars that had killed tens of millions nuclear threat was imminent Children were often taken from their mum if their mum wasn't married. Often by the church. All kinds of injustices were committed against anyone deemed not to fit with the norm. So some things were better, but some things were worse. The answer is not to go back to the traditional way. That's not the message. There are some amazing positives from individualism. Number one, the belief that every single person is made in the image of God with equal worth and value. That's a really important uh, accomplishment. People think like that now. Powerful revolutions change the way people think. People think like that now. That's really important in the West. Some of you are living in this country because where you come from, people don't think like that. That's why you came here. It's to be celebrated. Women benefited in some ways from the revolution. We'll look at ways in which they didn't in a moment, but in some ways, very enabled to come out of abusive relationships, enabled to, empowered by a sense of self in a good way. Enabled and empowered to be able to use their gifts and use their talents and enjoy making a living with their gifts and talents, the dignity that that brings. These are wonderful things, brilliant developments. All of us would want to celebrate those things. The changes have created a kind of a scenario where cover-ups by institutions, including the church, have blown open, blown wide open, and it's horrific, but it's better that it's out than it's in and carrying on undercover. But it's horrific. But we, 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 we thank God. We see the, the, the providence of God in blowing these things open so that there can be repentance. There's been a move away from sex as a shameful subject per se. That's a really good thing. 
was a really good, the traditional era, there was a kind of a stuffiness, a prudishness around sex, a sense of kind of religious shame about it. That's gone. That's great. I think historically in the church, there's been a lot of conviction, but perhaps not much compassion. One of the, one of the things I most respect about the current mindset in the West is the compassion. The compassion for the individual, I think, is phenomenal. Phenomenal. And I'm deeply challenged personally by it. But there are many losers from the sexual revolution. Often women and children. As a result of the revolution, many children have grown up not knowing their dad. Many. For those whose dad has left, almost 30% have never had contact with him. 20% only see him a few times a year. Generally, those who grow up with both their parents have a better educational, mental health, and financial outcomes in life. That's just statistics. And I don't say that from any kind of moral high ground from a single parent home myself. And I've got so much respect for what my mum did. But there's a reality to this, some cold, hard data here that we need to, we need to respect and, and take into account and, and celebrate. The widespread use, widespread use of pornography among the young being educated by extreme ideas of sex, this revolution gives no answers to the rise of porn. It's got nothing to say. It hasn't got a sexual ethic. Because the people in the video consented, right? No answers. Nothing to say. And our children are being educated through their phone in this stuff. Children are not being shepherded by adult wisdom. They are told to look inside themselves age four or five and decide who they are. That is a travesty. That is abdication. That is forsaking the next generation. That is a horror. And we wonder why there's so much anxiety out there. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's a kind of a Gnosticism. Gnosticism was one of the heresies of the early, around the time of the early church where there was a secret knowledge. You can find it within you. It's kind of that, but just in modern, in the kind of modern guise. And it, it's just this, you know, it's just such a pressure for kids. Sounds like freedom, but it's just a huge pressure. Women lose out, as usual. All the talk of sexual freedom, huge pressure to look like the airbrushed models and filters used to adjust appearances, huge damage, emotional distress of being used by men for their often rampant sexual desires. I mean, she just flipping hits the bullseye on it. She hits the bullseye on it. Bad. Really, really bad. This guy, he is a Christian. He's written a fantastic book called A Better Story, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing. Highly recommend it. I read all of it, although the last two chapters I've skim read, but I've read it all. He says, vague notions of freedom and just being yourself, marketed by today's media-driven individualism, simply won't do. It's a house of cards. I'll read that again. Strong words. Vague notions of freedom and just being yourself, marketed by today's mass 
today's media-driven individualism simply won't do. It's a house of cards. Now, why does he say that? Uh, why does he say that? This is really important as we enter into this series and think about it. Because one of the things about this revolution and this radical expressive individualism is this is that the two main things the bible teaches us about humanity it's got no room for the two main things so if you like the foundations anyone ever played kaplunk if you might think cool what it's there's a plastic tube and there's loads of like plastic cocktail sticks it's got a lot of holes in it and you put all these plastic cocktail sticks through and you balance the marbles on it and you pull the sticks out one by one and the person who at the end has got least marbles falling in their tray is the winner. Well, there are two really big plastic cocktail sticks that the Bible gives us in terms of understanding humanity. Number one, that we're made in the image of God. Number two, that we're fallen. The current Western mindset of radical expressive individualism has got zero room for either of those, which obviously is a huge problem. Because both those things mean this about when we're thinking about sex, that we're made in God's image and that we're fallen. It means this. It means that sexually, that we are made as sexual beings, will have a transcendent meaning and purpose to it. Because God made us in his image and he made us as sexual beings. Everything about us has transcendent meaning and purpose to it. So this must too. So that's, that's, that's really important. But secondly, because we're fallen, it means we're all broken in this area. All of us. When talking about sexual orientation or whatever, I just never use the word straight. I never use the word straight. I'm a heterosexual man. I'm not straight. I'm as crooked as a 10 bob nut. We all are. sexual desires for things that God says if you take the traditional reading of the Bible that's not going to do you any good it's not what you're made for but we all have desires in those areas all of us but we're broken in other ways we find that we have no sexual desire we don't know why so these are foundational and I think it's really important that we just reckon with that and are just honest about that because our wider worldview ignores both those things. Now, the final point of today's sermon, just to finish the process of helping us think, is this. I want to reflect on how we make moral decisions around sexual ethics. You're going to do some thinking now, okay? As if you haven't up till now. <laughs> Anyone heard of Jonathan Haidt? H-A-I-D-T. Okay, so he's a, he's a, a social psychologist, and he, he, gives us this, he gives us this quite helpful image um, in terms of thinking about how we make our decisions about what we think morally is okay. And I guess for the sake of today, we'll think about sexual stuff. He says this. He says, um, da, 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 da. Hate conjures a picture of a small man riding an elephant. The rider represents our rational, logical self and the elephant, our intuitive, instinctive self. Okay? So you're like, you, you're both, okay? We're both, okay? I'm a rider and the elephant. The rider represents rationality, 
the re- elephant represents instinctive response to things. And Jonathan Haidt's um, proposal is that people make decisions based much more on the elephant than on the rider. And I want us to look at that and think about that together. He gives a really helpful illustration of six things that come to mind for most of us when we've got to make a moral choice, a moral decision. Okay? For us, we're thinking about sex, but it could be any number of things. Okay? And here are the six things. On the one side, on your left, we've got care, we've got fairness, and we've got oppression. On your right, we've got loyalty, authority, and sanctity. I'll say that again. Care, fairness, and oppression. So care, okay, so our concern for the individual involved. Fairness, what, 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 seems, what, see, what's gonna, what seems like the fairest outcome for the person or people we're thinking about. Oppression, is there anything oppressive going on here that shouldn't be anything unjust? That sort of thing on that side. And then here you've got loyalty, authority, and sanctity. So loyalty, who are we a part of? And what does that mean for what we do? Authority, who are our trusted voices? And what are they saying? Sanctity, the sense of sacred creation, what God has made. All six of those will come into play when we're thinking about moral, ethical things. And now, here's the thing. When you are driven by the elephant, when, when the elephant is, 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 is making the calls on stuff, there's some observations that he makes. Number one, he says this. And, and just to say, out of interest, those things that are over on your left, Care, fairness, and oppression tend to be more associated with the political liberal left. Those things on the right, loyalty, authority, and sanctity, but those two are more associated with socially conservative views. So again, that's quite interesting, just to be aware of that. Um, So he says this, four things. Number one, over-reliance on our moral intuition, i.e. the elephant, supports lazy thinking and fosters bigotry. And let me give you, he gives a really interesting example of a granny. This has got this great, it's got granny, right? She's watching TV and two women kiss each other and she screws her face up and looks away. Right? Why? Because it's wrong, she says. That's wrong. That shouldn't be happening. She won't, she won't watch it, okay? Fast forward a couple of months and she's sat down with her grandson who um, has had a hard time of it, hard time of life, really, and who um, has recently come out as, as gay, and her position changes like that, flips like that. And she's, well, you know, and, and, and she's got, she's, she's, and she's ready with, with reasons why, you know, you know, in terms of sociologically and psychologically and relationally and affectionately, it's the elephant. The elephant t- turned her the first way, the elephant turned her the second way. It's bo- in both cases, it's her intuition that's driving her rather than thinking about it. And when you are driven by your intuition, it can support lazy thinking, you don't actually think it through, and, and a kind of a bigotry where you're just kind of, you know, you're, you come across in a, well, of course that's wrong, well, of course it's right, you know, hold on a minute, <laughs> we haven't thought about it. Number two, over-reliance on moral intuition, making decisions by the elephant, 
makes people vulnerable to social pressure and conditioning. Because media is clever. Media is really clever. And so what it can do, of course, is it can, it can tell stories in a really powerful way that pull on your heartstrings and turn the elephant. All of us have experienced that and all kinds of stuff. You suddenly think, you know, I've found myself, you know, you, I don't know, what's your X factor, sort of weeping. <laughs> Why am I weeping? When was the last time I wept about the gospel? Why am I weeping? And it was they put the music on at just the right time, the keyboard connected in, you know, and this poor person, and no one's ever liked them, and now they've got this amazing voice. <laughs> yeah, gone. I don't, I don't really know what's going on, anything about it, but you know, media. So if you're sent by the elephant, you just rely on, well, it's, it's surely, you just rely on that sense of what it feels like, then actually you're quite vulnerable to social conditioning. Number three. The rise of radical expressive individualism has shifted people's moral intuition towards the left of the spectrum. So the mindset that has come with the sexual revolution has undoubtedly shifted the emphasis to those three things, care, fairness, and oppression. Those have, I mean, we would just all recognize, wouldn't we, from things we've read and things we see, that's normally what the narrative's around. Very rarely about these other things, if ever. So again, we've just got to recognize that and see that and just be aware. I'm just trying to help us kind of be aware of, we're all in it, aren't we? So just to step out and look at it and consider it so we can weigh things up properly. Really interesting, Justin Welby, um, who has obviously come under... <laughs> So much fire of late um, because of the uh, situation with um, with the Anglican Church and their decision to not change their doctrine on marriage, but to um, allow for same-sex blessings. He was he went to um, sub-Saharan Africa and obviously had a, had a really hard time because they're living in very different air culturally. It's much more on this side. Interestingly, his his. I think when he was in Ghana, he's, he, he, and he's obviously being held to account, asked questions on stuff. He said that the, the challenges we are facing in the UK are, dr are driven by growing atheism and individualism. That's his assessment. The challenges we're facing are driven by growing atheism and individualism. So, Now, number four. It's really important. Final one. We see all six moral systems perfectly integrated in the life and character of Jesus. All six. And we are called to be like him in how we make our moral judgments. So you don't have to choose. Let's... Longer sermons these weeks. The story of the woman caught in adultery followed by Q&A, so it's just like we're not even going to end with a song. Sorry. The woman caught in adultery. If you're not familiar with this story, it's a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And we're told here, so John chapter 8, at the beginning. People came to him. He sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, and so the religious leaders brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses, so in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, right? So you've got sanctity, you've got authority, 
Yeah, you've got loyalty. It's all, it's all over on the right. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, because they've had more time to make mistakes. They have more time to realize what idiots they are. They're wiser. <coughs> now listen, Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. On the left. Care. Loved her. He loved her. Fairness. Why was she being singled out? Oppression. Hypocritical leaders bringing her forward. Neither do I condemn you. Okay? Go your way. Sin no more. Loyalty. We're part of the people of God. Authority. We've got the scriptures. Sanctity. You're made in his image. It's not okay to do that. Jesus shows us how we are to respond to such things. Only, only through him. The very gospel we believe, the very work on the cross, we see the left and we see the right. Care. He's hanging there for me. He's hanging there for you. Because he loves us. He loves us. Fairness is a funny word to use. Not really fair. It's almost so extreme in its fairness it becomes unfair. But he hangs there for the sins of the whole world. Level ground. Oppression. Because we're not just sinners. We're also we're also under the rule and domineering power of dark forces, oppressed. It's all part of it. Jesus deals with them at the cross. Loyalty. Unswerving commitment to the Father's will. Unswerving commitment to the Father's will. Authority. Totally submitted. So I only do what I see the Father doing. Not my will, but yours be done. I'll go to the cross. Sanctity for the glory of God and for the restoration of the image of God in humanity. Jesus hangs on the cross. This is how you assess what's right and what's wrong. It's not just a rider. It's not just the elephant. And in, if, in order for us to mature and really shine the light of Christ to one another and to a desperately broken world we're going to need to grow into the likeness of Christ aren't we and we're going to have to over these weeks engage with and try to understand how the biblical sexual ethic brings in this whole picture that it's not just that and it's not just that and we don't need to take bits out and put bits in but we can we can be confident in scripture and the picture that it paints of how God deals with his creation. It doesn't take us to Jesus 
If we don't become like Jesus, who was full of what? Grace and truth. Truth is what God sees. Grace is how he sees it. Truth is unflinching. God says, no, this, God, this is what it is. <laughs> this is what it isn't. Grace is how he sees it, filled with compassion, filled with mercy, filled with generosity. So a church that is becoming like its saviour should be filled with grace and truth. Should be a place of conviction and compassion. Yeah? Not throwing out conviction so we can be compassionate. Not throwing out compassion so we can stand in conviction. But say, no, we want to grow into the full expression of all that he is and all that we are. Amen.